0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only Master Cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
3: You're listening to Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Maria Zizka has cooked and written with many of California's leading chefs, co-authoring cookbooks with Squirrel's C- Jessica Coslow, Tartine's Elizabeth Pruitt, Camino's Russell Moore, and AOC's Suzanne Goyne. We'll be re-examining exactly what makes California cuisine and discussing Maria's role not just as mediator bete- between chef and home cook, but translator as well. Welcome, Maria. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So let's begin with like a little um, kind of history of California cuisine. Who were California's culinary innovators um, in the 70s and what did they contribute?
4: Sure. So I should say right from the start that um, I was born in the late 80s. So I didn't exactly live through this important time period, but I've worked almost entirely with chefs who are heavily influenced by it in one way or another. And um, I'm generally fascinated by California cuisine and have read everything I can find about it to try and understand the many interesting nuances. Um, So it's a really fascinating time period um, in our country's history. The 1970s and also to some extent the 1960s were transformative years for California's culinary landscape um, because chefs and young people in general were questioning the status quo and starting to create their own ways of thinking about food. Um, And you'll remember that it was such a politically charged time. Um, In Berkeley, California, there was a ban of on-campus politics that triggered the free speech movement, um, which was a massive student protest led by Mario Savio in 1964. Um, and this protest had grown directly out of the civil rights movement and was later closely connected to the anti war demonstrations when the U.S. began deploying troops to Vietnam in 65. Um, so by 69, when the draft was instituted, you can imagine the level of mistrust that young people had for the government and other authorities. And um, as a response, they rejected the conventions of their parents' generation and turned everything upside down, reinventing themselves, art, music, politics, and, of course, that brings us to food. Um, so many of them were raised on the industrialized foods popular in the 1950s, things like highly processed products and TV dinners And throughout the 70s, they began seeking greater authenticity and more purity in their food. Um, And there's one more important thing to keep in mind, um, just in terms of the history of this time period. This generation also, understandably, was interested in getting out of the country and seeing more of the larger world. So many of them traveled internationally if they could afford it. Um, flights to Europe were relatively cheap at the time. And they had these culinary epiphanies overseas, um, delicious, affordable French wines, freshly baked loaves of bread that actually had the flavor of wheat grain. Pristine cheeses made the day they were eaten by people who raised the animals and so on. So, um, When these young people returned home, they wanted to experience the same pleasures of food, and they wanted to change the American system. So some of them, like Alice Waters, for example, in Berkeley, started cooking for friends and trying to find fresh ingredients and real foods near where they were living. Um, But in other parts of the country, others were doing very similar things. Barbara Lazaroff, for example, uh, who would go on to co-create Spago with her future husband business partner Wolfgang Puck, was hosting dinner parties as a student um, at NYU in the 70s. And uh, Helen Brown was writing cookbooks, um, including her West Coast cookbook about using local ingredients, which was a truly revolutionary idea at the time. Um, And I've heard that the birth of California cuisine is somewhat akin to the Big Bang in that many chefs living in different places had the same ideas about cooking fresh local food without having communicated with each other. And collectively, there were enough pockets of creativity happening close enough together that something entirely new emerged. But I think it's also fair to argue that Alice and the opening of Chez Panisse in 1971 has had perhaps the most lasting influence on California cuisine, um, not least in part because the restaurant continues to be a beacon and also launched the careers of countless chefs working today.
3: Yeah, so you were saying um, Alice Waters wanted to cook for her friends and she was looking for these fresh ingredients. Is do you know if she was having trouble finding them? Because California, I feel like, has always been seen as this place with, like, over abundance of fresh produce. Is Was California already set up to produce this kind of cuisine, or was it something that had to kind of be instilled? That's
4: a great question. Um, I think that initially, fresh produce was somewhat difficult to find, um, and I know that Alice convinced friends and neighbors to start growing uh, small lettuces that she had tasted first in France. And um, and she started seeking out farmers um, who were doing interesting and less industrialized things. Um, so no, I think it took some time and some effort and a lot of people asking for that kind of food. Hmm.
3: And you're saying this kind of cooking style emerged all over the country, um, not just in California. Do you think, uh, when did was it termed California cuisine or why was it termed California cuisine?
4: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question too. Um, there were people in different parts of the country thinking about local ingredients. Um, and I think that California cuisine probably means different things to different people today. Um, But when it started, it was simply about cooking with what was available and not following classic French recipes, but perhaps using those techniques to cook with local produce, seafood, and meat in a style where the hand of the chef wasn't so obvious in the final dish, where the focus was really on the food itself.
3: Hmm. Okay. So... Um, In addition to sourcing local ingredients and keeping, I guess, the hand of the chef pretty light, what other Mm -hmm. California cuisine practices are uh, still in use today, or maybe we see not just in California restaurants?
4: Well, a big part of California cuisine today is um, a care and thought for the entire chain of events that happens before you pick up your fork to eat something. So there's great interest in understanding every part of the system from growing practices, sustainability, environmental effects, fair wages for producers, safe workplaces, and so on. And one recent development that I think is gaining steam is the gratuity-free restaurants. And you've probably seen more and more pop-up around you, mm-hmm. um, where restaurants are eliminating tips. And uh, Chez Panisse has, of course, included service as a percentage of the bill for some time, but um, Camino in Oakland eliminated tips entirely, and, uh, and I've seen so many other restaurants start to follow suit.
3: Yeah, I actually I work at a gratuity free restaurant. And when we tell people that um, a lot of customers get really uncomfortable and say, like, are you, are you sure is the custom to actually still tip? Because I think it's like right. still a very um, kind of awkward practice for some people.
4: Definitely. Yeah, I, um, I think it's interesting to ask people how they feel about tipping. Um, and I think there are generational differences definitely to it. I, I think that um it comes from an effort to really even out the payment for front of house and back of house and mm-hmm. and I think that that's a, a wonderful aim to to have and um and it, and it works for some restaurants and I think it's been less successful in others.
3: Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so kind of to shift gears a little bit, I was reading this book by Joyce Goldstein on the California food revolution. And uh, she mentioned this really interesting note where there's this big innovation in desktop publishing, just like the ability to write a menu on your home computer on Microsoft Word or Microsoft Paint. And that really changed the restaurant game because people could quite literally change the menus every day. And how I, I felt like there was so much more metaphorical signific- significance to this. And how do you think mm-hmm. this ability to be so spontaneous and playful with food is actually like, kind of a big deal?
4: Yeah, I know. It sounds somewhat normal to us now, but the idea in the 70s that a restaurant would only serve what was available that day and would change their menu every day was actually totally revolutionary um, because the norm then was to keep the menu the same. And if you couldn't get fresh carrots, then you used canned carrots or Mm. frozen carrots or maybe the next, next best option. Um, but today it seems like a total norm, doesn't it?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. I feel like that's kind of what's expected at most restaurants today. Um, I don't really remember mm-hmm. the last time I saw like a whole punched laminated menu mm-hmm. and now it's all just like kind of print <laughs> out papers with pizza stains on them. Like it's all very casual now. Mm hmm. Okay. Again, to kind of shift gears, um, a lot of the women you've worked with, um, I, I guess mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of the California chefs you work with are women. And I think that is really special. But how is it and why is it that so many women are able to be successful or find more fame in California, it feels like?
4: Yes. Yeah. To me, this is a wonderful and uh, unique to California quality. The the early leaders of California cuisine in the Bay Area uh, were all women. Alice Waters, Judy Rogers, um, Joyce Goldstein, and Cecilia Chang. And they served as such influential mentors to the next generation of California's chefs. Um, And through their work, they really debunked this stale idea that being a woman and a chef was somehow impossible. Um, they've showed that, you know, they could be restaurant owners just the same. And and uh, and there's a real sense still today, I think, of women fostering the next generation's career um, and and keeping this beautiful chain going. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, so when... When I when I think of the term California cuisine, or when I think most people think of California cuisine, they think first and foremost uh, freshness, fresh ingredients, uh, using just mm-hmm. what's local. But I think there are other uh, kind of ways or other things we associate with it. For example, um, there's the very watered down idea of California food, like the Southwest chicken wrap, or you know just a lot of like baked goat cheeses and and watered down salsas. And so how how does California cuisine represent things that may not actually be very good or may not actually be very fresh, but still is kind of mm-hmm. used to refer to that?
4: Yeah, this is so interesting. Um, I, think that, I think that the reason, part, at least part of the reason why things like a Southwest chicken salad um, feel so different um, than... You know, something that would be served at Chez Panisse is because they're sort of ripped out of context. And when you encounter it at maybe a fast food chain, um, and you see on their menu something that that alludes to California cuisine, it doesn't it doesn't have anything around it that is grounding it hmm. to that place and that time. Um, you know, there's no you don't know which which farm it came from or or even you know what time of year it is it it could be it could be any month that you'd eat something like that um, and so I think it's really just a, a lack of context mm-hmm. and
3: how does um, northern or if at all, how does northern California cuisine differ from southern because i'm I'm actually from Southern California, and I feel like when I go home mm-hmm. and I have foods that I can only have in California, it's actually like all Asian food, all Chinese food or Korean food or Mm -hmm. Indian food. And so I actually feel like to me, that is what
4: I grew up knowing as California cuisine. Definitely. Yeah. Northern California and Southern California are different for sure. Um, It's funny. I was born in Berkeley and uh, grew up here. And like most people in the area, I had a major chip on my shoulder about Southern California, <laughs> um, and I think it was a total one-way rivalry. But we had these images of you know the fake blonde and the, the ditsy girl, and and so you can imagine when I started uh, dating in college, I started dating my now husband Graham, um, and he grew up in LA. Uh, and my friends were so skeptical because <laughs> I, I was still steeped in, in this just um, this one-way rivalry and mm. and so and then the, the craziest thing happened he, he took me to Los Angeles to meet his family and they showed me a side of Southern California that I had no idea existed. Um, and I think it's really easy to feel that way if you haven't been there with Um, are real local because many of the most beautiful things about the city are are hidden. Um, Like His mom took me on her usual hike through the mountains and we ended at a waterfall and that was just like blew my mind. I couldn't believe we were in LA and his brothers took me to the most delicious shrimp taco stand in a weird back alley in downtown LA and We've gone there so many times since, and, and I really made a complete 180. And now I'm the biggest fan of Los Angeles and, and such a proponent for its cuisine. It's incredible what you can eat there. Like you were saying, the, the various um, communities that make up such a diverse city have each grown this unbelievably delicious, food culture and uh and you can eat almost anything there it's it's amazing
3: so if you were to work or to write a book on california cuisine today um Mm -hmm. whose restaurants or which dishes do you think instantly you would feature
4: oh that's tough (laughs) um gosh i think i i think that one really important part that I would try and keep in mind is that California cuisine has been influenced by so many different communities Um, and I would try and include as many as I could because in terms of diversity California is one of the most diverse states in the country and also importantly home to so many immigrants Um, We're one of the closest states to Asia, so we're extremely fortunate to benefit from communities of people who immigrated to California and brought with them their cultures and cuisines. And similarly, Southern California in particular shares a border with Mexico, and and the Mexican communities have absolutely shaped the cuisine in, in so many delicious ways. And so I would try and show... Just the breadth of um, of cuisines that are that are present. That it may have California cuisine may have started um, possibly in the Bay Area, but I think that now it it's really more of an idea of using what's around you more than anything else. And and in different parts of the state, what's around you is completely different. So. So, I think it would be a big challenge, but I would try and incorporate all of it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, when I was looking up the kind of history of California cuisine, I found this mm-hmm. cookbook um, written in Spanish by this Mexican immigrant in the 19th century, and it was a book on Californio cuisine. And I, it got me mm-hmm. thinking about the difference between California cuisine and California cuisine, if there's any at all. And I wonder if, do you have any idea on maybe if the, Immigrants' experience of California ingredients, or just that, i don't know—the cuisine is—is is any different than an outsider, as you were saying. You were, as a Northern California, looking to Southern. Um, do you think, yeah? Do you think theirs is any different?
4: Yeah, yeah. I, um, I've heard Californio as the the Spanish word for for Californian, and and that it was first used. Um, by history scholars, to describe someone with Spanish or Mexican heritage who was born and raised in California, mm-hmm. um, and and absolutely, I think it's now a defining part of the food here. Um, and I think it, uh, I almost think that they have become inseparable in a way that um, California is made up of of so many different communities and um and i think they all have sort of put their fingerprint on it mm-hmm.
3: you're listening to meant to be eaten maria and i will be right back after a short break
1: To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
4: Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival.
0: We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food.
4: Join us as we talk all things food,
2: Come to Charleston, eat some seafood, eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken
4: with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes.
0: So quintessentially like
4: Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations.
2: We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about.
4: We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. Uh, I, 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 was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock.
1: It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find.
4: You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is
1: constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks.
4: So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong.
3: And we're back. This is Meant to Be Eaten. I'm speaking with Maria Ziska today on California Cuisine. And so um, on this past season, uh, we've been speaking a lot about fusion foods, quote unquote fusion foods, um, kind of like Japanese American foods, um, soul food, and even Filipino American food. But more importantly, the implications of cooking foods from another's culture. But um, what I think is so unique about Californian chefs is is that they seem to get to use ingredients from any cultures and kind of dodge any sociocultural responsibilities or yeah, I guess the the bad part. They get to reap all the good. Um, And why do you think that's so, Maria?
4: Well, I'm not sure anybody completely dodges it all. Um, But I think there's two very important um, reasons that make it um, less problematic in California. And the first is love for the food and for the culture. And I think that includes a deep, profound respect for, um, say, the origin of a dish or um, a a particular place in the world uh, where it's, it's known to, to be from, um, and I, I think that this is actually really important and, and helps build a lot of context around something, that if you truly love and respect it, um, then you're going to treat it with care and and you're not going to, you know, do anything that's, that could, could become problematic. The second reason, I think, is honesty, um, that chefs in California... Are often very honest about a dish's origins. Um, so, for example, when we were working on the Squirrel Cookbook, um, Jessica wanted to make uh, wanted to have a recipe um, for a classic Thai dish included in the book, and uh, and so she said, and we made sure it was in the headnote that if you want the the authentic version of this, please go and make a reservation at Night Market, and, and they have this amazing version that you could try. Um, and that the version that would appear in the school cookbook is Jessica's interpretation of it. Um, but key to it, I think, is that she acknowledges um, from the beginning her love for this dish and as well as um, being honest about uh, how, how it came about and why they serve it a squirrel.
3: Yeah, I uh, actually um I got that book at the Strand and I remember flipping through it and oh, thinking yeah? like oh, this is actually really neat because it's like she's able to share um this dish that's not from her culture with her readers and in not a ownership kind of way but just like a, this mm-hmm. is something I really loved and you should love it and go try to make it for yourself but if not go and go eat it yourself which I think was really cool.
4: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. That's the the idea that it's you don't own it nobody owns it, um, is, is so important.
3: Mm-hmm. So you were working with Jessica Coslow um, and a lot of other big superstar chefs. And let's kind of talk about your process as a co Um, does sure. a chef approach you in writing a cookbook or do you approach chefs that you want to work with?
4: Well, both, um, has happened. Um, it, I guess it depends. There are some, some books that, um, you know, it, I have an idea for, um, and then there are other books where it, it, the chef has an idea and, and sort of needs um, a partner to, to really make it happen. Um, so I'm always on the lookout for interesting ideas and restaurants and, and new things. And, and then, of course, I'm, I'm also always open to, to people contacting me.
3: Is, has there been something that you've turned down and why, uh, what what kind of, what's your, um, I don't know, what's your
4: cue that it's something you definitely yeah, want to work on or not? This, that's a great question. This is something I think about a lot um, because I couldn't possibly do all the books that, you know, I'd like to. Um, so I have come up with somewhat of a system to help me decide and, uh, and, and, my agent, my literary agent teases me because the first and most important thing to me is that I work with nice people.
2: <laughs> this, this
4: guides all my decision making. Um, I just really want to work with nice people and, and I think it's because I, after, after working on a book with somebody, which, you know, takes years of time and a lot of hard work, um, Every chef I've worked with has, has become such a dear friend and for life,
2: mm-hmm. and they're
4: they're going to be you know part of my life forever. And so I'm I'm pretty careful um, about which projects I take on, and and I also care a great deal about the concept. You know, it has to be the book has to be made for a reason, um, because so much effort goes into it um the the idea has to be super solid.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're both devoting so much of your time and your energy and years of your mm-hmm. life to this one book and how um if you know that a recipe or a story is not going to come out for another 3 years or 5 years, how do you kind of know that that recipe will still be relevant
4: or interesting? Yeah, no yes, it's it's of course impossible to know for sure. Um but I think that there are a few things I look for. Um, I'm always curious about uh, new techniques and sort of new ways of seeing things. And, and often um, chefs will have, will do something, you know, like a, they'll have a little trick to a recipe and they'll do it. And, and to them, it's no big deal. They do it every day. This is just how you do it. But, um, but I'll see something and, and realize not a lot of people know about that. Um, and that's worth printing in a book and publishing and distributing and, and talking about and trying to, to get into other people's lives.
3: Yeah, so it's not only um, that you're co-writing or co-authoring, but it's almost like you're translating these terms or these methods from the professional kitchen to the home
4: kitchen, right? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly how I describe it, translating. Mm
3: -hmm. And can you think of an instance where something got totally lost in translation or just never made it into a book that you really wish it had? Yeah, this
4: is a good question. Um, I pay a lot of attention to the little details that have the potential to get lost in translation. Um, So from the beginning, I'm on the lookout for them. Um, But I can think of two instances where uh in a first draft something was lost in translation and we we were able to catch it because I I think the details are crucial um so the first one is for the Camino cookbook there is a wonderful Tunisian orange cake that um instead of using flour relies on breadcrumbs
0: Hmm.
4: and uh they at the restaurant, of course, they have bread that you know they bring out with butter at the start of the meal. Um, and any leftover bread, they turn into breadcrumbs and they make this cake. But um, when I first wrote the recipe, i I wrote this whole thing about how you know you have to you, you buy a loaf of bread, but then you have to wait at least twenty four hours until it's dry enough to then put it in a food processor and turn it into breadcrumbs and, and Russ Russell Moore, the chef Camino, um, saw it, saw the first draft and said, no, no, we would never, we would never buy bread just to make this cake. We just use <laughs> the leftover bread, um, and try and, you know, transform it, uh, in this way. So, um, so we changed the recipe so that it's now clear that uh, <laughs> you're meant to make the cake with something, breadcrumbs, that you already have in your pantry. That's
3: that's really um, special. It's like yeah, um, kind of like an accidental or like a cake that happens to you instead of one that you really have to yes, force it to be. That's being. a great way
4: of putting it. <laughs> Are there yeah. any other? And the, the, I can think of another example, too. Um, for the Squirrel Cookbook, uh, there's a recipe for apricot jam. Um, and usually in a recipe, you know, you would list the amount, the by weight, for example, like four pounds of apricots. And I think that must have been what I did initially in the first draft I wrote, however much apricot. And, um, and Jessica... Saw it and and reviewed it and said that this is this is actually a really important part. You can't use apricots that aren't perfectly ripe um, because if you if they're a little under ripe and and firm, even if you cut them into pieces and cook them into jam, they'll never uh, fall apart and and sort of. Become that jammy texture you want. They'll just remain like little hard rocks in the in the jam. So, mm-hmm. so she saw what was sort of a norm convention, and um, and we changed it so that it was very clear. And her her idea of of you know taste an apricot first, and if it tastes firm, then leave them out on your counter for a day, and then make this jam tomorrow.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. No. Th- I feel like. Um, as exacting as you can be, you know, like tablespoon, grams, um, there's still so much uh, chance for things to go wrong for the Mm -hmm. home chef, you know, there, we might substitute some things or just not use ripe apricots. And so if with that knowledge, how do you write recipes Mm -hmm. to kind of guide your reader to the closest possible version of what you had
4: intended? Yes, I, this is such a great point. I, I'm always thinking about, you know, when you follow a recipe, there are all these junctures where you could you could go this way with it or you could go this way. You might um, as you said, use ripe paper cuts or, or unripe ones and and so I try to add as much detail as possible without with that I think within reason because you could probably go too far. <laughs> um that would sort of um, arm the reader and so that he or she feels very well-informed and very confident in making substitutions and in maybe diverting here or there because um, of circumstances. So, you know, if they don't have an ingredient, but they feel like they understand the recipe deeply and they feel like maybe... They could substitute something that they do have. Um, that is wonderful. I think that's a that is a sign of a successful recipe. Hmm.
3: Do you think um, most people pick up cookbooks to cook recipes, or like what do you think is a typical experience of a cookbook?
4: Oh, I'm not so sure. I think that lots of people just read them or look through. The pictures, which can be so beautiful, or you know, learn stories about a chef's life or um, the author's experiences. Um, I think there are all kinds of ways that cookbooks work their way into people's lives, and I think that's one of the reasons that they're so special and that they really mean a lot to many people.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I are the, the most memorable cookbooks. Um, aren't the ones where i i might might take a picture of the recipe or the photo but Mm -hmm. i don't really replicate the recipe ever or even think Mm -hmm. to i think it's more it feels like i'm traveling through this chef or traveling through these photos or these recipes to you know some other culture some other life Mm
4: Mhm. totally me too
3: Uh, what are some cookbooks or cookbook authors that really have inspired you
4: Oh, this is such a hard question. I, I feel like my aunt, my favorite cookbook changes every day, um, but one of my all-time greatest inspirations is the uh, Zuni Cafe cookbook.
0: Hmm.
4: Um, it's, I, I've, you've probably seen it. It's really thick. It's like three times as thick as your average cookbook, and it is packed with all of these details Um, that we've been talking about little things, little lessons and tips and uh, ways that you can learn in the kitchen. Um, And I feel like I must have read that entire book through hundreds of times. And yet every time I pick it up and flip to a new page, there's something there that I didn't see before, some little lesson that I'll incorporate into my cooking. Hmm. Um, So that's, that, to me, is, is really an example of fabulous recipe writing.
3: Mm-hmm. And what are you working on now?
4: Oh, it's very exciting. I am working on my first solo cookbook. Yay! So I've... <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't it awesome? I have co-authored a bunch, as you mentioned. Um, but this is my first where the recipes are my own, and uh, and I'm really excited to share it.
3: What, um, can you give a hint as to what the theme is or
4: what inspired it? Definitely. It's about cooking with someone you love. Um, so my husband, Graham, uh, who is my number one co-cook in our kitchen is the book's designer. Um, and we are collaborating on, on making this book, um, and it, it will be published by Artisan early next year.
3: That sounds amazing. I think I just started crying a little bit. It sounds really sweet.
4: <laughs> Hopefully it will be <laughs> not too cheesy, but, um, but really celebrating what is so beautiful about cooking with someone else and, and how that's different than, than cooking by yourself.
3: Mm -hmm. that's a perfect note to end on Um, this has been meant to be eaten I've been speaking with Maria Zizka I'm your host Coralie thanks so much for listening
2: thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you